Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. We have a lot to get into on tonight's show, including last week's combined no-hitter from the Bowie Bay Sox and their victory over the Altoona Curve and a scorching hot week for Jackson Holiday down in Winston-Salem as he continues to tear up high A pitching at the young age of 19. We'll get into all of that and some more topics on tonight's show in just a moment. But first, I'm going to throw it over to Bob to introduce a new member of our Patreon community. Yeah, we got someone signed up at the AA level, Eric Sauter. Welcome aboard. I played Little League Baseball with a Jason Sauter. I don't know if there's any relation, but... Thanks for joining. And as a reminder, you can sign up for a Patreon community for as little as $3 a month and have access to an exclusive WhatsApp chat. And then at the 5 and $10 levels here, get bonus daily content from us, as well as monthly updates to our top 50 prospect list. On Friday night, the Bowie Bay Sox completed a combined no-hitter over the Altoona Curve, the fifth nine-inning no-hitter in franchise history with over 7,800 fans in attendance. Chase McDermott got things started for the Bay Sox by striking out four batters and walking four over five innings of work. Those four walks were the only runners to reach base as Nolan Hoffman and Easton Lucas came in behind McDermott and were perfect. Both pitched two scoreless innings with Hoffman striking out five batters along the way and Lucas standing three. So obviously a big night for the Bay Sox. Nick, I'll start with you. We know that uh, Chase McDermott has elite stuff. We know that the two relievers backing him are pretty good in their own right in Hoffman and Lucas, but this no-hitter, it's always kind of a surprise when it happens, and it's fun to see. What were your thoughts on the game? I I did not think that we were heading towards a no-hitter. Actually, early on, you're watching, and you look at like McDermott through 89 pitches in those five innings and only 42 strikes, and I think I checked in like the third inning – I checked in. I was like, I'm going to start watching this because I saw McDermott had give up no runs and not thinking, oh, it's going to be no hitter, but just thinking, all right, McDermott must be cruising. And then uh, he had, I don't know, like 50, 60 pitches or like 20-something strikes. He already had like the four walks. I'm like, I I don't know. Let's see what he does here, though. But like, I feel like we were just talking about Michael Bauman throwing a no hitter down there for Boo. It's like time flies. Um I thought it was great. I mean, it's really good for someone like Chase McDermott to you know have that experience. And Nolan Hoffman, 
I mean, I'm sure I'd, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into all of these guys specifically, but like Nolan Hoffman had a pretty huge spring training. I mean, he was save after save after save. He got that save at Tropicana Field in spring training against the Rays, even. So it just adds to his resume, a cool experience for him. And Easton Lucas, a, a guy who I thought was going to be in Norfolk by the end of today, uh, he's having a great season. So I, it's really cool for all those guys. I'm glad to, to see that, and especially just this Bowie team. It's been a rough season, I think, overall. They're what, like 12, 13 wins on the year so far. So clearly a good week highlighted by the no hitter, and hopefully uh, inject some uh, new life into this team going forward. Yeah, because we know promotions aren't going to do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like you said, definitely sneaks up on you a surprise, especially when you got a guy who walked four batters in his five innings and then. You know, these combined no-hitters aren't exactly as exhilarating as a, a guy that just goes out there and shoves for eight or nine innings, uh, but still really cool. And my favorite part was the Nolan Hoffman two innings with five strikeouts. I feel like he's had a lot of bad luck with batted balls, ground ball pitcher. That's going to happen. Not the best start to the season, but hopefully this kickstarts him. I know he didn't have a great start last year either, and then he got on a roll before he got hurt. So that could be good. And Easton Lucas, I feel like, he just never goes away, and uh, I think he might end up being a pretty solid reliever, whether it's for the Orioles or another team. So Jonathan VR lives on. But uh, Chase Mc McDermott, our friend, uh, Chase McStrikeouts, he only struck out four batters, but, you know, stuff is so good. I feel like there's so much movement on his pitches that he's going to get weak contact even. And just it's almost like he's a Yanir Cano, Felix Bautista, maybe even Juanis and Charles. We'll get to him later. Uh, where just throw the ball over the middle of the plate, let, let him try to hit it, you know, just control, don't command, and let's see what happens. But it was it was a really cool, really cool uh, day of baseball down in Bowie. Bob touched on it a minute ago by noting that Hoffman has had some bad luck. And when you look at some of the numbers to start things off for him this year, he's got a 6.75 through his first 10 and two-thirds, 6.75 ERA through his first 10 and two-thirds innings pits. But – He's doing something that he does really well in that span as well, which is not walking anybody. He's got 12 strikeouts now against two walks, and that strikeout total includes the five from Friday night. So he continues to do that. He gets the ball on the ground. Uh, hitters really just don't hit the ball in the air off of him very often. So you feel like eventually it's going to start turning where you're going to look, I think, a month from now. You're going to see that ERA come down. And I noted too with Nolan Hoffman, I think that six seven ERA, six seven five ERA is a big mis misleader because he's got a a three point oh three FIP and a two point nine seven xFIP, so way lower than that six point seven five ERA. Ten and two thirds inning on the season. You only mentioned two walks. He's already got twelve strikeouts, and he's not producing like the normally high. He's normally like sixty sixty five percent ground ball rate. He's not at that rate this year but the strikeout rate and walk rates are career best right now only 10 any sample size so it's still a long way to go but as of this rate he's you know, career highs or career best in both those categories and so i mean that arm angle is just unbelievable it's wicked i don't know how you stand in the box when he's listed at six four and he is just all arms and legs coming at you like i don't know how you know, far his extension is but it's got to be deep and you would think that the command just would not be there with this guy but even back to Seattle days, that command has always been there. I, I think, I honestly believe that whether it's with the Orioles or not, like Bob said with Easton Lucas, I, I think Nolan Hoffman's a major leaguer at some point. I hope it's with Baltimore, but as a minor league, a minor league rule five pickup and a really fantastic one at that, I think. 
Yeah, and Cole Uvila, who we who was released this week along with Ryan Conroy mm -hmm. and don't tell me <laughs> another relief pitcher, Phoenix Sanders. Mm -hmm. He'll rise from the ashes uh, with another team, but yeah, just you know these rule five, these minor league rule five picks like Cole Uvila. You know, I still think there's something there with him. Hopefully, he catches on with another team. But Nolan Hoffman, I feel like he's a little bit younger compared to Uvila, and maybe he'll take his spot up in AAA pretty soon. Yeah. But I want to say too about McDermott, though. Like, I think I said on a previous show that I f I felt like watching McDermott earlier this year that. If you would have asked me, like, all right, McDermott gets to the major leagues, what is his role going to be? I probably would have said very likely a reliever, like a powerful reliever. He's got he throws two of my favorite pitches in the entire organization. That fastball that just like nitro nitro boost explodes on guys once it reaches right in front of home plate. And then the curveball is just the most beautiful pitch in the organization. Top five, without a doubt. But like he's still he's got that strikeout rate north of thirty four percent right now, and yeah, the walk rate is still high, but it's like three or four percent lower than last year. It's down to fourteen percent, so he's showing improvements there. And actually, I don't know if you guys read it. I I haven't read BaltimoreBaseball.com. Oh, oh, Rich Dubroff, shout out Rich. I haven't read his work in a very long time, but he has some good quotes from a uh, Forrest Herman, the pitching coach now in Bowie, who's with Aberdeen last year. He's getting to work with all these guys for a second year in a row, which I think is pretty awesome. But he noted in that article that you know he's really working on executing in the zone, is what Forrest Herman said, executing his best pitches to different types of hitters in the zone. Uh, he also says, like, you've seen him figure out how to troubleshoot the situation on the mound and navigate some difficult innings. And I, I noticed that in not the no-hitter, but the start before that. Like, he gets himself in trouble, but he was able to get out of some really sticky situations. Uh, a couple of times this year. So there's definitely growth uh, with Chase McDermott as the season's gone along. Yeah. And I know, Nick, you've mentioned that D.L. Hall is getting a little prospect fatigue. Mm. Well, buckle up because I think Chase McDermott <laughs> is the right handed version of D.L. Hall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's what, 24? Maybe yeah, a little he's... bit older because of the COVID year, I think. Yeah, I, I could I could definitely see that. He's going to show you that flashes, and he's going to have all these great starts this year, but that walk rate is going to stick at like 12%, 13%, and you're just going to be like, next year it's going to be better than next year. Yeah, I could see that. I feel like if McDermott's a starter, there's probably some five and dive with him. Five innings, mm -hmm. if you can get five innings, less than three runs from him, more often than not a lot of strikeouts, you're going to be happy with that result. The stuff would play up really well in the bullpen, but I'm curious to see, you know, how he's going to start, you know, not just for the rest of the way at double A, but when he gets to triple A, how's he going to perform there? I think that's going to tell us a lot. And Nick, you brought up a good point, which is that we've seen him work his way out of some tough situations. I remember a start against Erie a few weeks ago. It was a morning game. His first inning was really bad. Gave up a home run or two. He was constantly falling behind in the count. And yet he managed to stick in there for a few innings and kept the Bay Sox in the game until things unraveled later on. So that was a really positive sign for me. And that was also a day where he didn't have his best command. He was constantly falling behind in the count. But his stuff after the first inning got so much better that he was able to come back down 1-0, counts and get strikeouts against guys. So the command isn't always perfect. And we saw that on Friday night. But... There's real swing and miss stuff there. There's real elite pitches, like you said, with that fastball and curveball coming. Yeah, I mean, 
opposing hitters are batting just 158 against them on the season. That's phenomenal. That's <laughs> yeah. 158 all year. Uh, so it's really just that walk rate. And he's got four walks in each of his last two starts. But before that, the walk rate was really good. It was a lot more impressive. So maybe this, you know, maybe he's tinkering with something. And, and that's what's kind of leading to these increased walks. We'll see over his, his next couple starts if he can get those back down. But I mean, he's shown already this year and a stretch of like three or four starts there that he could keep the walks down. So I, I just think maybe, again, it's you know, process over results. Maybe he was tinkering with something and figuring something out and he'll get he'll get it back under control of these next couple of weeks. I wonder if long-term the Orioles could have a pitching staff of like, you got Grayson, you got Bradish, you got Cade Povich, and then two veterans of your choice up there. And then just like four or five guys like McDermott, D.L. Hall, um, Noah Denoyer, Drew Rahm, who can just go two or three innings and wipe out one time through the order uh, with the opposing team hitters. I feel like that's kind of the setup I see now. And then you got Felix Bautista in your near Cano to, to close it out. But I don't know. A lot of intriguing arms here and only so many spots on a, a pitching staff. I think that's a good segue to Easton Lucas, who is someone that had a really strong case for being promoted to Norfolk. Um, at the start of this season. He was solid last year at Bowie. He looked good in the Arizona Fall League. And he is off to an excellent start this year. 12 innings pitch. He's got a 2-2-5 ERA with a 1-7-5 XFIP, a ground ball rate of just under 55% at 54.5, and a strikeout per nine of 14 and a quarter with three walks per nine innings so far. So Lucas seemingly has picked up right where he left off last year when he had a good finish to the season for Bowie and then pits well in the Arizona Fall League. Outside of just there not being spots for him at Norfolk right now, I can't see any reason why he's not in AAA. He's 26 years old. Like, it's not like, I mean, he's more than 26 and a half years old. He'll be 27 in September. So, yeah, I think, I don't know. It's again, it's just the problem of, too much depth, too much depth, especially in the upper minors. I've obviously you see from Bowie and Aberdeen, there's a little bit of a law there between the depth and the lower minors and the upper minors. But yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that some of these guys that are a little bit older and deserving of being up another level, it's just not happening just because there's so many guys that deserve to be where they are ahead of them. So yeah, Easton Lucas, I would imagine it wouldn't even be shocking if he made his major league debut sometime late in the season, depending on how bullpen injuries and such go. But he does that definitely deserves to finish the year in AAA. And I'm sure we'll see it before too long, but they got to see what they have. And some guys, I, I feel like some of the guys in AAA, like um, Edward, what is not Edward Bizardo. He's been great. I actually really like him, mm-hmm. but Ofredi Gomez, he, I forgot the Orioles had signed him to a minor league contract and he made his season debut this past week and you got guys like who's the guy that uh, Andy Costco liked um, Reed Garrett you got Dowdy Kyle Dowdy like these guys uh, are they really something I don't know but I, I'd rather see like Easton Lucas up in AAA at this point but I guess they're just doing their due diligence yeah I mean I mean you can never have enough depth I mean that's one thing but at the same time yeah like all those guys that you just mentioned other than Bizarro, I don't know how old he is but like Dowdy and Garrett are like 30 something years old uh, Bizarro is only 27 but all these guys do have major league experience so you want them there I and mean, there's really no other 
room on this roster. I mean, you got guys like you know Bruce Zimmerman, they obviously want there in case of emergencies, Spencer Watkins as well. I mean, really the only guy that I look at and say, I don't know, your roster spot might be in trouble would be like Morgan McSweeney. He's had a really, really rough go this year. And I know he was getting a lot of steam, especially from fan graphs, uh, just what, like two years ago, not even. Um, he's had a rough time in AAA, but yeah, I really don't see like any other room on this AAA roster right now, but yeah, like Lucas, like you said, he's 26, get him up. And he was good last year in Bowie, 56 innings last year in Bowie. And he's already got, I don't know how many innings he's got this year, 12 already this year. Uh, he was good last year, you know, not great, but he still had 65 strikeouts in 56 innings. And this year you see, he's got the 2.25 ERA, 19 strikeouts, just four walks. And the ground ball rate is like a career high, like 20% above his career high. So, I mean, he's he's got a lot. And who was it? MLB Pipeline, I think. That was, Turned into a starter. Yeah. They're like some scouts. They were quoting scouts saying some scouts believe this is a guy who's he's a lefty who can run it to the mid-90s. And some scouts think he could be a starter at the major league level. And I think he was rule five eligible for the first time last year. Right. So if he's having an even better year in Bowie this year, and he's real five eligible again, you're either going to have to bring him up and add him to the roster because I think he probably would get selected, or he becomes one of those guys like a like a Dale Hernandez type trade. We don't want to just lose this guy for nothing. We don't see a spot on him in the major league level, so we're going to trade him at some point. So, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of that actually over the next two, three years, trading these real five eligible guys just because there's no room for them anywhere. Well, and you've got another packed off season coming up with the Rule 5 draft. This is what happens when you have a top-tier farm system. But right now, Jordan Westbrook, Heston Kerstad, Hudson Haskin, Ryan Watson are just a handful of the names that are going to be Rule 5 eligible this offseason. So, yeah, that's a completely valid point. And you'll have to probably make Gene some Pinto. tough decisions with some of these relievers, <laughs> Lucas being one of them. But he's pretty much pitching where you know as good as he was at the end of last year. And... I think he's got to be one of the first guys, along with Justin Armbruster, that goes up from that Bay Sox pitching staff when there are openings in AAA. We'll go down to Aberdeen now. And if you've heard us say this before, it's because we have said it before, and it's because he keeps forcing us to say it. Jackson Holiday is a really, really good baseball player. And that was on display last week in Winston-Salem when in back-to-back games, Holiday fell just one hit short of the cycle. On Tuesday night in a rain-shortened contest that went just five innings, he was a single away and was three for three with two runs scored and six RBIs at the time that that game was ended. And then the following night on Wednesday, he comes out and falls a home run short of the cycle as part of a five-for-six, five-RBI performance with four runs scored. Holiday would win South Atlantic League Player of the Week last week, and he is now slashing 394-513 with a... OPS of over 1,200 through his first 127 at-bats. So, Bob, I guess so much for him possibly struggling at Aberdeen right away. Yeah, Gunnar Henderson, he is not. Um, It's just anytime you look at his numbers, it just is like mind-blowing how good he's doing. I feel like we said this a lot coming into the year. I feel like even we are underrating Jackson Holiday. Yeah, we were. <laughs> of course we were. But um yeah, man, he is so fun to watch. Like he's just on time with everything. Even his outs are like line drives at people. And I feel like the one nitpicky thing you could come in and say 
would be like, is there going to be enough power here? And obviously, he bulked up. He put on muscle over this past offseason, and he's strong, but he's still just 19. Yeah, <laughs> he already has plenty of power with obviously much more to come as he fills out into his frame. His defense is impeccable. The timing on – he just – He's a major leaguer mentally already. It's just about the reps and going through the process of getting there. I really feel like he could be in the major leagues right now and hold his own. That's just the kind of plate discipline and the just great swing that he has. It's just not much effort. Like It's just all so disciplined. And, man, I can't believe we're about to have three number one prospects three years in a row. This is the second best team in baseball right now who has <laughs> who's about to have a new number one prospect in all of baseball. And uh, next year, when this team is competing, I think next year the goal isn't just like playoffs, right? Next year, we're talking World Series. That's the, that's the aspiration. Uh, how high does Samuel Basayo go next year? But we'll talk about that next year. But like Holiday, so I looked on Fairgrass and trying to like put this into perspective, like how good is he? And you know, you got he's only doing this against low A and high A competition. I, I get that. But if you look up on fan graphs, filter by qualified hitters in all of minor league baseball, he's number one in all of minor league baseball with a 1213 OPS right now, which is crazy. But you look at the rest of the leaderboard, like the guys right behind him are 25 year old Nolan Jones, 23 year old Nolan McLean, and two 24 year olds in Christopher Morrell of the Cubs and Zach Kakaska. I think a distant somehow relative of Andy Koska there from Colorado. Like that's the top five. And Holiday is 19 years old. The only other 19 year old close to him is, of course, it's Tampa Bay Junior Caminero. He's eight. Yeah, that guy's good too. Yeah, he's also only 19. So like everyone in minor league baseball with an OPS over a thousand, there is only one other teenager on the list, and it's Tyron. I'm assuming it's Tyron Lorenzo from the Dodgers. Never heard of him before, to be honest. But go figure, Orioles, Rays, Dodgers have the three teenagers who are absolutely raking. That's fantastic. But there are no 20-year-olds on that list with guys above an OPS over 1,000 and one 21-year-old. That's it. And there's Jackson Holiday at the top of this. Like even His 513 on base percentage is second in all of minor league baseball behind only a 30-year-old, Philip Evans. <laughs> The 222 WRC plus is 25 points ahead of second place in baseball. Like, and Aberdeen just went up against the best team in the South Atlantic League, and Jackson Holiday decimated Winston Salem's pitching staff. I don't know why they were pitching to him anymore at this point. And the, the question on the screen: If Holiday keeps crushing Aberdeen, how long is he realistically going to be there? Honestly, I don't see why you would not promote him in June. Like, I'll give you till July 1st at the latest challenge him if he's going to keep doing this i get he's only 19 they're going to want to give him a little bit more time but and he's not going to stay as hot as he was last week but realistically how much is he going to cool off against high pitching i give him july 1st move up it's it's interesting he's been with Aberdeen what four weeks now and um Mm -hmm. they've been on the road for three of those weeks so Let's see. They're home this week. This week, if he just keeps hitting it, and I don't see why he wouldn't. I mean, yeah, June or July for sure. Part of me is like, I, I can't see them pushing him that fast. But at the same time, this is an organization that has talked about they constantly want their guys to be challenged. If it, it's just not any more of a challenge than Lowe was, 
I don't see why not. It's not like Billy couldn't use the help. <laughs> so um, there's no one blocking him as far as moving up to Billy sooner rather than later. And yeah, uh, I'll put whenever the all-star break is for the minor leagues, I'll say that's when he gets the bump up. But I honestly wouldn't be shocked if next week Kerstad and Prieto go up and Holiday goes up. Like that's how insane it is. And here's another question, Zach. Do we want to answer this one? Yeah, is Jackson Holiday, and this is from Wyatt Wall on YouTube, is Jackson a superior prospect to Manny Machado? How do the O's keep him in the minors very far into 2024? So I'll start with this one because I saw Machado in his first full season at Del Marva, and the answer is that Jackson Holiday is a much better prospect than Machado was. Machado was, you could tell, a gifted defender, and I still wonder what would have happened if he had started out at shortstop in the major leagues. But the plate discipline wasn't there. The power didn't come along right away. In fact, the power really did not come along from Masato until he got to the major leagues. Um, I do remember seeing him in Frederick later that year and thinking that he had taken some big steps forward from where he was in Del Marva, but he was not anywhere close to the kind of player that Jackson Holiday is. Jackson Holiday is a, probably a notch lower defensively than Machado, but not a significant gap with much better plate discipline, hits the ball harder hits it more consistently, and I think has more power at the stage than Machado did. Yeah, yeah, To me, he's clearly a better prospect at this age. I mean, Machado obviously continued to develop, and once that power hit, he was a very good young player at the major league level. So Jackson still has to do that. But, yeah, I would say that Jackson Holiday is a better prospect than Manny Machado at, around this age at this level. How do the O's keep him in the minors very far into 2024? They don't. They just don't. I mean, I honestly, at this point, he's going to get a chance to win a job out of spring training next year because if he's this good, draft pick, thank you very much. And honestly, it's getting to the point where the Orioles have the second best record in baseball. If they win the division or get into the wild card, how surprising would it be if he was on the playoff roster over like a Taron Vavra as a bench player just to get the best talent on the team at the most important part I'm not saying he'd be a starter but I don't know at this point that would not shock me either I mean he's gonna have if my math is right and my math projection is right and you're talking about projecting math that's a whole other story with me but he's gonna have this week he'll have more at bats in high a than he had in low a over the last two years so like and he's his numbers are way better in high a than they were in low a so yeah i i just don't see him being a high a for very long and i mean machado as a 19 year old went to the big leagues played 51 games had a 97 wrc plus 18.8% strikeout rate, only a 4.5% walk rate, hit 262 with a 294 OBP, 1.3 F4. Was defensively, obviously, he was a wizard defensively. I could see Jackson Holiday at least matching those kind of numbers by the end of the year in the big leagues, without a doubt. I mean, I don't I don't think this is like us just like gushing over the kid because he had a fantastic week. I mean, this is like legitimate. Legit when you watch this kid play, and I don't know how many times how many people were in uh, the Twitter mentions this weekend? Like I'm here live. I'm watching Jackson holiday. I've never seen anything like this before. It's true. It, obviously. I think when, when Jim Callis made that comment over the off season, like Jackson holiday is a better prospect right now than Gunnar Henderson was at that age. I'm like, 
right. That's a slam all right. dunk. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. I was like, all right, I, I'll take your word for it, but let's let's see how this plays out. Uh, I mean, Jim Callis is the nail on the head. They try to tell us the second he was announced it's going to be a major league spring training the year after being drafted out of high school. That was like, okay, they see something special. Well, not just in major league spring training. He was in major league spring training for most of camp and was going up against higher level pitchers. That said a lot to me. I looked at the way that he was used and the way that Heston Kersa was used in spring training. And it was apparent to me that this isn't just a, you know, come up here be around the veterans for a week or two and then go back down to the minor leagues. This is kind of in their way. I almost sort of look at it as the new model of what they did in 2020 with the camp at Bowie. You know, you've got that kind of environment where Gunnar Henderson, we know, thrived at the outside. Jackson Holiday thrived in Major League Spring Training. Heston Kerstad did too. And for both players, I think the results are showing themselves right now. But going back to Holiday specifically, my – expectation has been and still is for the most part that holiday will have a gunner henderson type cameo at the major league level at the end of last year retain prospect eligibility going into 2025 when he would be the odds on favorite to win rookie of the year with that said i am starting to question that now because if he hits this well and let's say he goes to Bowie and the results are you know Decent, but not great. He hits 235 with a WRC plus of like 95. That's still really good for a 19-year-old at double A. And the plate discipline is going to be there. We have not seen that plate discipline waiver at all this season. Yeah, and with the offensive environment in Bowie versus high A, especially in Aberdeen, that would be – I mean, obviously in a – I, I would be shocked if that actually happened. Like, I expect him, when he gets to Bowie, to continue to be over 100 with the, the offense when it comes to WRC+, and maybe well over, just because he's special. Right. Or even if you push him now, like in the next month or so, up to Bowie, he's already three and a half years younger than the competition in high A. I don't, I don't even know what the average age in double A is off the top of my head right now. What is he going to be, like six years younger than these guys? I mean... Even if he's over there, I could see him. You push him up now. I could see him even having a, a Gunnar Henderson esque stat line, like Gunnar's having in the major leagues right now to begin a season. Like you look at the batting average, and maybe the hits aren't falling, or you know, he's making good contact, but you know he's he's being challenged by Double A pitching as a 19 year old kid. And so like the hits aren't there quite yet, but he's walking and he's getting on base and he's stealing bases and he's still making an impact. The gl- the glove, he's shining defensively. I think you at least get that, and I'll take that. I will definitely take that as a 19-year-old in double-A. He comes out, and like Bob said, next spring training, he's challenging for a major league job. Maybe he doesn't make it, you know, whatever, service time, blah, 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 whatever, all that stuff, but he's in the major leagues before too long next year. Nick, you have this set up on Twitter. Um, 34 straight games, Holiday's gotten on base. 39 if you go back to last season. He's played in 34. I didn't believe it. I, I went through this list like 10 times last night. It was very late. I was very tired. But I went through this list over and over to make sure. All 34 games he's played this year, he's reached base at least once. I think one game, he only got one at bat. One played appearances, he reached base. Uh, and then the last five games of last season, he reached base. So 39 straight games this kid has gotten on base. It's absurd. That is pretty insane. Here's another question from... 
SLGS Reds thoughts about what a future infield would look like? Would Ortiz slash Westberg move to second base? Yeah, I still hate this question because there's so <laughs> many pieces and you get more pieces coming up. Um, yeah, I mean, even even if you move Mateo, right, or, or they move on from Mateo, whatever happens with Mateo, if he's not your starter, and I think most Orioles fans kind of agree, like Mateo is not going to be the guy of the future in this organization. Um, maybe he can find some role, but as a starting shortstop, you know, TBD. But if you take Mateo out of the equation, yeah, I would probably, I mean, I'd say Gunner stays on the left side of the infield. You probably keep him at third base. I think he can settle in and, and be a, a above average third baseman over there. Jackson Holiday probably at short. I, I would probably put Holiday at short over Gunner if I'm being honest. And then, yeah, if you have the luxury of choosing between Joey Ortiz and Jordan Westberg at second base, what a problem to have. I just, man, Ortiz is mm-hmm. honestly showing out already in his brief time at the major league level. I wonder if Jackson Holiday's second base. I know. Or maybe they can split time. I don't know because Ortiz is pretty slick out there. Uh, but Holiday's good too. It's a good problem to have. But yeah, I think Gunner at third, Ortiz slash Holiday at short. And then, yeah, Westberg, maybe he's your Ramon Urias who just gets in like five games a week if he's still around even. Uh, you know, between third base, shortstop, second base, honestly, first base, DH, left field, right field, whatever. Anywhere but center field and catcher, I feel like he could probably play yeah. in a pinch. I think the Orioles are kind of telling you, too. Like, Joey Ortiz didn't get any practice time in the outfield in the minor leagues, and he's up and playing shortstop for this major league ball club. Jordan Westberg's out there playing left field, right field for the Tides. <laughs> I think that tells you a lot about how they view these guys defensively. Yeah, I completely agree. I if I had to guess right now, looking long term, Gunner's a third. I would say that Holiday and Ortiz, like Bob said, maybe split a little bit of time with Holiday, getting most of the starts there. But either you know, either way, I think you're going to see some combination of second and short for those two guys. Westberg in the sort of super utility role, where he's going to have some starts at third, some at short, but not very many. Some at second, and then some at the outfield corners. The what X factor for me with Westberg on defense is going to be, can he play left field at Cannon Yards? Because if he can, his value goes up to the Orioles pretty significantly. But if they feel like he's going to be challenged out there and that when they're home, he's going to be more limited to right field, that's not ideal because I don't, I don't know that Westberg has the arm for right field. But you can make it work with a short right field there. But if he could play left field even two nights a week or one night a week, that increases his value pretty significantly. To be fair, Taron Vavra's seen a lot of time in right field of late. If he has the arm to be able to be put out there, Westberg has it. But I, I definitely see what you're saying. But, yeah, if he's got enough athleticism and range to to man left field in Baltimore, that would help his case a lot. Yeah. I think it will all be cleared up, though. Maybe whether or not it's this trade deadline or the off season, like it's it's going to be cleared up because there are going to be moves. Like there there have got to be moves, and you have some fantastic pieces. Whether it's Ortiz or Westberg, and I know that's a I feel like a constant debate in you know the Patreon chat. Like who's better? Who should the Orioles keep? And it's a good conversation to have. I mean, who provides more value? But 
one one or two of these guys when you're looking at all these players in the upper levels of the minor leagues you include connor norby you throw in others i mean i'm even down here looking at like frederick and cosme i know we love the kid but i think his trade value is that's not that's a name to not shy away from who could yeah. prov- give you some big time value on the trade market as well it's be a, a jersey i'd have to get from a, another town but. <laughs> question here from dental office whose bat is better westberg or mount castle um, Nick, you want to take this one first? Mm-hmm. Not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. See, if you would have asked me like in the offseason, I probably would have said Jordan Westberg. But I, I just I, I really do love what Ryan Mountcastle is doing this year. I, he is one of the more unlucky players in all the baseball. I think all Orioles fans realize that at this point. It's tough. Westbrook hits the ball hard. He's going to walk a little bit more than Mal- – I mean, most people walk a little bit more than Ryan Mountcastle. <laughs> I would but- probably walk a little bit more. <laughs> I think Jordan Westbrook is going to strike out more, honestly, at the major yeah. league level than Mountcastle sure. does. The power, the exit velos, I think Mountcastle might have a slight, slight edge, but Westbrook doesn't hit cheapies either. That's a tough question. I might give it the is. slight edge to Mountcastle. Yeah, it's a very tough question. I would probably give the slight edge – edge to Westberg. There is more swing and miss than I think people realize in Westberg's game, but mm-hmm. he's still just like Mountcastle, like Nick said, probably like a mile or two on average, a little bit less, but he still hits the ball super hard. can hit a home run anywhere on the ballpark. He's, he's going to walk probably double or more than Mountcastle and he can play a premium position. I know that has nothing to do with his bet, but it does with his overall value. Uh, I give the slight edge to Westberg, but I, I still do like that Mountcastle. He can just crush the ball right at people. <laughs> it is close. I would give the slight edge to Mountcastle right now because I think there is a lot of bad luck again this year, and eventually it's going to write the you know things are going to turn around for him. What's interesting with Mountcastle for me this year is that a 23% strikeout rate for a guy with that kind of power is not bad at all. Um, you wish the walk rate was higher, but the strikeout rate is not that bad. And there is some swing and miss tendency to Westbrook's game. So I would go with Mountcastle right now. I think it's possible that Mountcastle is the better hitter, but Westbrook has the higher overall value. Another question here from Dental Office. Need an update on Connor Norby. He was my pick to be the Orioles' full-time DH for the playoff run this year, like our cleanup hitter. That's not going to happen, but... Um... Norby, I think we've touched on this in our dailies and stuff like that. He's He's been better of late. He's made some adjustments. He's hitting the ball a little bit harder, a little more consistently, walking a little bit more. And he's a guy who I think we feel like could probably just stay in AAA all year and then see what happens going into spring training of 2024 just because he's got some stuff to work on, but he's still a super talented hitter and uh, you know can work on the defense and consistency. Yeah, I mean, normally when I sing praises for a guy, like typically the guy we do in our last section, he has he just craters out the next week, and I look like an idiot. But um, Norby, I sang Norby's praises last week about he had some swings. I was like, that's the Connor Norby from last year. Uh, and looking at his numbers from last week, he played in six games, all six games last week, had an 892 OPS, collected a home run, and had four walks to just one strikeout. He only struck out once. And strikeouts, he was having a, stri- a big strikeout issue. 
I think, for much of this season to begin the year. One strikeout in six games from Norby is uh, fantastic. Yeah, he's not going to be the full-time DH at the end of this year, but he's showing, I think, what you would want him to do, which is just hit the ball triple-A. Like Nick said, he's kept the strikeouts down, and he's got the kind of bat that even if he's an average second baseman defensively, he could stick around the game for a while. Mark wants to know, where do you see a bat like Kowser fitting in the MLB lineup? If Kowser keeps doing what he's been doing this year, which is walking as much as he strikes out, he's probably a leadoff hitter. But do either one of you think that that's how he projects, or do you see him lower in the order? I think he's a leadoff guy. Um, Well, Mullins is pretty entrenched there right now, but I think he's either a good first or second spot. I mean, obviously, every hitter that comes up to the majors is going to start lower in the lineup and work their way up to the finally settle in. But ultimately, I think he's a one or two hitter just because he's got underrated power. So you want him getting a lot of at-bats. He walks a ton. Yeah, I think he's a top-of-the-lineup guy. Yeah, he's got to be somewhere near the top because, like you mentioned, that the on base. I don't. I gotta look up his updated totals here, but uh, it's really unfortunate that he's on the the IL right now because he is really pushing for a major league call up at some point soon. But for his career, his minor league career, he has a four thirty one on base percentage, uh, which is just unbelievable. He's got a four sixty nine on base percentage this year. He's got one of the best eyes in the organization at the plate. So I think. You want him at the top of the lineup getting as many plate appearances as possible because he's going to get on base at a very high clip. He's not going to get on base 45% of the time in the major leagues, but I, I feel confident in thinking that it's it's going to be up there. And I'm curious to see, too, like when he gets to the major leagues, how much power is he going to have? I could see him being like a 20-home run guy, honestly, with an on-base percentage 375 some years even. I, I could realistically see that. And I can't remember who... I don't know if you guys read the article or not. I didn't read it. I don't know if it was uh, from Rock, uh, who was giving away free MacBooks. I don't know if you guys saw that online or not, or who had it. But someone was talking to a scout about Colton Kowser, and they were like, yeah, I've changed my tune on Kowser. I really love this guy. And I didn't read the article to see what they said. I don't know if you guys read it or not. But I think everyone's starting to take a little bit more notice of Kowser and his abilities. I'm just thinking about next year or the year after and laughing to myself. Like, we think – the Orioles are good at pitches per plate appearance and on-base percentage right now, even though Jorge Mateo and Ryan Mountcastle are in the lineup. Your top four could be Colton Kowser, Jackson Holiday, Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson. I mean, come on. Here's what's interesting about the, this question is that I sit here and I process it a little bit more. I could easily see a situation where Kowser has one of the top two spots where he's hitting as low as six because – if Mullins continues to perform better against lefties and you see what he does with the stolen bases, he's not going to come out of the leadoff spot, at least most nights. And Adley, for as long as what Adley continues to do, what he does at the plate, is an ideal number two hitter. So that there's not really a spot for Kowser to break in there unless Mullins starts struggling more against left-handers or if in a year or two the Orioles decide to trade him before he hits free agency. But if Kowser is your number six hitter or your number five hitter, that speaks to how deep this lineup is. The lineup is deep right now, and it could be even deeper in a year or two. And, hey, Mullins is the RBI leader, so let's get him in the hard order. He might even get a break while Juan Gonzalez's record. Yeah, there's a 
dental office there has another question about uh, Colton Kowser and hitting lefties. Uh, don't tell Brandon Hyde this, but uh, Colton Kowser, or maybe we start screaming it uh, from the rooftops there of Cameron Yards. Colton Kowser's hitting 320 with a 469 OBP and an 1109 OPS against lefties. Small sample size, uh, but and against righties, it's pretty similar. 333 with a, a little bit lower OPS against righties. Again, higher sample size there against righties, so of course going to be a few points lower probably. But it, yeah, he's doing finding both sides of the plate. That's good to hear. I hadn't looked at that. A lot of good questions rolling in tonight. We'll go to the one from Wyatt here. Where might Hester Heston Kurosad fit in the O's plans? Bob, where do you see that? Uh, well, we're talking about Ryan Mountcastle a lot. I think we're looking at Ryan Mountcastle's yeah. uh, inevitable successor succession finales next weekend well i think in a couple years kerstad could be the guy manning first base most nights for the orioles um can also obviously play corner outfield dh but i think he is in the plans for the orioles at this point and i think it's going to be mostly at first base and i like it i think you know he's just destroying double a deserves to be in triple a right now but there's a little bit of a long jam and why not just let him rake a little bit longer? But I do think he has a chance to be in the majors. He could be the, the Gunnar Henderson this year that gets like a month of, of play to keep his rookie of the year eligibility for 2024, but give him a taste of the majors. I could see that happening for Heston. Yeah, that was my answer. I, I honestly was just singing the praises of Ryan Mountcastle, but I hate to, I hate to use the word replaceable with Ryan Mountcastle, but you look at his production I do think that is a guy that I have a hard time seeing the Orioles shelling out, you know, a lot of money to for an extension. If I'm being honest, if they do and he plays well and he keeps improving and the numbers look great, I'm fine with it. I, I love Ryan Mountcastle. He's he's a guy that I've followed very closely since he was drafted in this organization. I remember old young shortstop Ryan Mountcastle down in Frederick uh, the the days, but like I could definitely see Kerstad taking over Ryan Mountcastle's position. I mean, you look at what he's doing in double A. The strikeouts are what blows my mind the most, honestly. The power, we knew that he's got the power in there. That's why they, one of the big reasons why they drafted him out of Arkansas. But he has a 175 WRC plus and a strikeout rate of just 16% in double A. Like that's, I I want to see what he can do against triple A because yeah, it's good power hitting first base and really are a dime a dozen to be completely honest. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Um, so yeah, I, I could. That's I agree with Bob. That's kind of where I see Kerstad's future being. Yeah, I kind of see Kerstad maybe moving around a little bit initially because Malcastle's not. Malcastle will be arbitration eligible, I believe, after this season for the first time. Won't be a free agent until after twenty twenty six. So the Orioles can wait a little while to make that decision, or excuse me, actually twenty twenty five would be when Malcastle hits free agency. But nonetheless, the Orioles can wait a little while to make that decision. Get Kerstad up maybe have him work between first base DH and right field initially and then settle into first base. That's actually not unlike Chris Davis many years ago where he could play third, he could play the outfield corners and first base, but eventually he played first base for all the highs and lows over the years, but we've so, moved on. So he's replacing Santander and then replacing Mountcastle. Is that, is that what you say? Yes. <laughs> No, I don't want to get into the Santander conversations. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting with a lot of these guys. Again, trades are going to clear some of this up, but 
when you look at if this guy struggles or if that guy struggles or if there's an injury or this guy doesn't end up panning out in the major league level, there's just options rolling in right behind him. This and this is this has been the plan. This has been like how purposely executed over the last three, four years. And it's we're starting to see the results and it's it's fun to have these conversations and think about this stuff. Go to a, a comment and a question here from Mark. I honestly don't see how Kobe Mayo makes it to the majors for the Orioles infield to stacked thoughts. Kind of like what I just talked about with stat. He's going to have to move around. Um, he's not going to be an everyday third baseman when you have Gunner there, but if he can play the outfield corners and probably get a little bit of time at first, even if that is a waste of his arm, that helps his case. To me, he's right field. He's got a cannon. He can use it right field, especially in cannon yards. It's not like you need to be Cedric Mullins speed out there. And I think may Kobe is plenty athletic to be able to, to play right field. And he's pretty good at third base too. I'm and Gunner is the third baseman. As long as he, you know, he's, he's been a little erratic with his throws and stuff, but I, I would imagine he improves that. So he'll probably stick at third base. I, I'm not wasting Kobe Mayo's arm at first base almost no matter what. Uh, that's why I'm glad Heston Kerstad is getting put there. So, to me, Mayo's like a right field DH, can play third base, could play first base if you need someone to stand there, give a big target. But right field, to me, if you got Kowser, Mullins, Mayo in your outfield, that's that's ideal for me. Yeah, and I mean, when he was on the show, he talked about that. He He's at least, he's saying the right things, at least, that he knows whatever he can do to get on the field, uh, he's going to do. I think we're seeing the bat start to take off this year in double A, which is really good. Again, he's still only 21 years old. And so it's good that we're finally seeing that breakout that I think we all agreed would hopefully come this year. Cause he really, because of the injuries, he really hasn't had that true breakout yet with the bat. He's having that now. I, I'm curious to see if later on in the year and not right now, it's still early. He's still settling in, you know, make sure he's consistent at the plate. Then I, I'm curious to see if, you know, Kyle Moore and the coaching staff down there in Bowie start to move him around the outfield a little bit more. I know he's played some first base on this year already, but I'd be curious to see if they go ahead and start getting him a little bit more comfortable out there in right field already. Yeah. Once that happens, I think that's when you're like, okay, he's going to be up to triple a soon. And then, you know, I think the bat is special and the Orioles believe in the bat. That's why I Mm -hmm. can see him sticking with them because I do think, He's super young as well. He's only 21. The bat is huge, and you just got to get in the lineup. So, yeah, once they start, you know, shifting him around, then it's like, okay, they're trying to figure out a way to get his bat in to the the lineup. I'm looking at Mayo's defensive log right now, and he's had 29 games at third base, his primary position, two at first base, five at D8s, and zero in the outfield. Why do the two of you think that's the case? I thought that we might see him get at least a start in right field by now, but is it maybe them wanting to get him comfortable to plate before they start moving him around, or is it because Bowie does have some guys who can cover the cover ground out there in the outfield, even if a lot of them are struggling offensively right now? Yeah, I think that's yeah, like what I just said was get comfortable at the plate first because that was the biggest thing. He just hasn't had that consistent playing time because was that two years ago his first full year he had the I, I forget which injuries happened at which point at this one you know he had the hamstring I think you have like a knee injury or something a minor knee injury that 
the back. As soon as he got to Bowie, he had the back issue. So it just hasn't been consistent playing time. So now for the first time, he's got, what, 34, 35 games this year. It's been consistent. No injury concerns, although he did get kind of steamrolled the other night and was grabbing at his knee, and I was like, oh, God, here we go. If they take him out of the game, I'm going to start crying. But he stayed in the game. All was good. Knee's fine. But, uh, yeah, I just think it's making sure he's got consistent playing time for the first time in his career. He, am I on, no, I'm on Heston Kerstad's page. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he's comfortable playing third base. And like I said, he's he's pretty good over there. So, yeah, just let him be comfortable. Let him get that consistent playing time like Nick was saying. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think through these questions, we've actually managed to talk about something we were going to talk about tonight, which is the lack of promotions. And as you kind of heard the theme in our answers, you know, over the course of that segment was there's a lot of depth. Uh, There's depth up and down the system right now. And we didn't even talk about pitching, but that has played out with Easton Lucas, who we talked about earlier, Justin Armbruster, Dean Pinto. There are a lot of guys right now just banging on the door of the next level that haven't gone anywhere because there's nowhere to put them. You want it to stay that way in one way because it means that for the most part the guys you want to be healthy are healthy and they're productive. But at the same time, we also know that there are players who need to be challenged. Um, And that's probably going to happen sooner rather than later because maybe a little slower than we would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, there's even been uh, like more injuries. Like Isaac Bellany and Michael Manticott were – with AAA Norfolk yesterday, Bellany walked in his first AAA appearance straight from high A where he's been struggling. So even with that, it's still like so full. And it's it's got to be tough for for the players that are have to see, look, I'm, I'm killing it. I should be moving up soon. But hopefully, you know, the organization does a good job of explaining. Yeah, typically you would, but this is not your – Typical organization. You're not with the Washington Nationals right now. You're with the Baltimore Orioles, and and you just got to be a little patient. It'll all sort itself out. It's, it's a good problem to have as fans, as people in the front office, and the coaches, obviously. But yeah, it's it's a little frustrating just because I was I loved last year. It was like every Monday. All right, who's it going to be? Let's see the promotions, and and I want to get back to that. But at the same time, like I said, AAA is stacked full. And that's where it all leads from. I know. I miss, I did it today. I caught myself. It's like 12 o'clock. All right, I'm going on my lunch break. You know, I'm working from home. I'm like, I'm going to go on my lunch break, go in the kitchen, make something. I'm like, it's 11.58. They're going to make announcements. I, I'm staying on my computer for like five more minutes to see. And nothing. Aberdeen's tweeting out, buy these seats or buy these tickets. I'm like, what are you doing? You're teasing us. But um, yeah, I, I think when you look at some of these rosters, though, I don't think there are a ton of guys who are like, need to move up right now but there are some that i think could do like justin armbruster i think can move up we've talked about the pitching though in norfolk where how many spots are really open in norfolk maybe one if you force the issue but armbruster has been phenomenal he's got an era of like well under two the strikeouts have not been there for armbruster but in that same article uh, rich dubroff's article and he has some quotes from forrest herman they talked about how he was really focusing on just pounding the strike zone and getting switches in the zone and attacking guys that way. So I, I think it's just been a lot more like pitch to contact. Just keep the ball in the strike zone. Even if they hit it, it's, again, process over results. Keep the ball like in this quadrant or that quadrant. Uh, don't worry about getting chases outside the zone right now. I wonder if that's been at play here and why the strikeouts are down. But 
if that is the case, then that's even better because he's not allowing runs and he's not allowing a ton of base hits. But Tyler yeah, Wells I, approach. Exactly. They, I, which is, I mean, another big boy as well. 6'4", 235 is what he listed at. I think he could should get the move up pretty soon. And Easton Lucas, like we talked about. But then again, where do you put him? But when they move up, like Gene Pinto, Nick Richmond, I think those guys can easily be moved up. They're ready for a new challenge. Keegan Gillis. <laughs> yeah. The guy still hasn't given up a hit. He's fully healthy. I think he can make that stretch, that leap as well. I guess the only other issue is like, who in Delmarva would you move up though to replace them? I don't see. I'm scrolling through the roster right now. I don't Yaki. see. Yeah, Yaki Rivera. I could see. Reese Sharp. You know, if you say work on the command in high no. A, maybe. No. Reese, not so sure. <laughs> I I don't really know. Yaki Rivera is probably the only pitcher. Maybe Juan Nunez is actually a little bit older than I thought he was. He's 22. Yeah, he's 22 years old. He's been pitching well. Maybe Nunez, but none of the bats, other than maybe Creed, but he's hurt right now. None of the bats are in Demarver ready to move up. But yeah, I just think there's a lot of awkward positioning. And you mentioned the injuries. Along with just these awkward positioning, you got some teams full of guys who just aren't ready because they were challenged at such a young age. They're playing well. They're just not ready for the next level. And you got in the upper levels at AAA. It's just stacked. There's no room. And it's created just this big log jam. And where's Cameron Weston at? I thought he was an intriguing arm that had uh, some looks last year in Delmarva. Yeah. Maybe if he gets healthy, mm-hmm. he could come up to, to Aberdeen. Or, or if Carter Baumler comes back healthy, he could go straight to Aberdeen maybe. We'll dive into our final segment now where we shout out a player outside of our top 30 list, whether it's for – a good game, a good week, or something in our stat line that we find interesting. There were a lot of good choices over this past week. And, Bob, I'm going to start with you. You've got uh, two guys that have been pretty familiar to this list. One uh, going back to when we started this segment in 2021 and another who has found himself here a few times in his first full year of pro ball. Yeah, and I think because of the injuries that we were just talking about, that the position player – beyond the top 50 has been a little bit tougher to find. Um, but Douglas Hodo for me, I was just surprised. I was just going through the WRC plus leaders within the organization today. And I was surprised to see that Hodo has a 129 WRC plus. And for a guy that plays great defense, I mean, I'm not watching and able to judge based off of that amazing feed in Delmarva, but apparently he's got great defense in center field. And I always forget just how bad the run environment is for for Delmarva, but he's batting 270, 411 on base percentage, 17% walk rate. He's striking out a lot, 32% of the time, but a 770 OPS. Um, yeah, that's 30% better than league average, 77 OPS. Um, yeah, just shout out to him. And I feel like he could easily be up in Aberdeen now or mm-hmm. when, if and when Fabian, Beavers, those kinds of guys move up to double-A Bowie. We're still waiting for those promotions. But uh, my pitcher is Ignacio Feliz. I feel like he's had a weirdest year. He's actually been pitching pretty well, at least as far as his walk rate to his strikeout rate. He's still striking out a ton of guys. He's walking less guys than he ever has in his entire career. His XFIP is 3.94, but his ERA on the season is 7.90 over 13 and two-thirds innings. We thought this was a guy that could start in Bowie, just like Pinto. They were kind of in a similar boat. But he comes back out and he gets blitzed in his first few starts of the year. 
or at least tandem outings. And it seems like they switched him to strictly relief recently. He's not pitched more than two and a third innings, at least since April 29th. And since April 29th, he's pitched nine innings. He's got a 2.00 ERA, given up six hits, one walk, 12 strikeouts. So move him to strictly relief, and maybe you got something. Like him. Um I went with a little bit older guy here in AAA because I think he deserves a shout-out. I think I did Lewin Diaz last week. Uh, and, well, I'm giving another veteran here down there in AAA, Daz Cameron, a shout-out. He has been a lot of fun to watch over the last week and is very quietly putting up an unbelievable season in Norfolk. He is, right now, last week, he hit 318, 423 on base percentage, and a 1014 OPS, had a home run, three doubles, four walks to four strikeouts in six games. So on the year, he's actually has a career low strikeout rate of 20%, 10% walk rate and an 840 OPS. Obviously when you got Connor Norby, Westberg, Kowser, Hudson Haskin before the injury, like you have this loaded Norfolk lineup. Daz Cameron kind of goes unnoticed. Uh, 840 OPS is nothing to scoff at six home runs already defensive highlights. He's been putting up defensive highlights all year long. I think, Elias took a flyer on an old friend and he's looking pretty good right now. And I don't think there's any chance they're like Ryan McKenna, you're out. That's Cameron. You're up. But this is that situation that we talk about all the time. The importance of depth. If McKenna does struggle significantly or the, and the bat just tanks and they're forced to make a move. Daz Cameron's a viable replacement as that fourth outfield type who is a very good defender in center field. You know, the Orioles keeping a close eye on him because of that right there. So more uh, shout out to him. Love to see it just because he's a former first round draft pick as well. Who's really struggled in the major leagues. So good to see him playing well. Yeah. If I could just yeah. speak on that real quick. I know McKenna was unavailable for a couple games with a back injury and they were debating putting him on the IL. Daz, Daz Cameron would have been the perfect guy to bring up. And if anyone's going to mm-hmm. fix him, I think it's going to be <laughs> Michael Eisen company who drafted him and obviously signed him for a reason. So yeah, good choice. Yeah. I, again, I, You've talked about on the show, you talk about that center field defense. If McKenna goes down, it's not going to be Stowers. That gets the call. I think it would be Das Cameron. Um, my pitcher, I want to get Wanderson Charles, man, just highlight him as well. We know he throws like 130 miles an hour, something <laughs> ridiculous, but like that's exaggeration. It's like 103, 104. Uh, he tossed two and a third scoreless last week, just one hit allowed. He had two strikeouts and no walks. So on the year, and he actually started the year on the development list, but I think that's not because he's like the Orioles are you know hiding him or you're trying to about to cut him or anything. I think it's because he was so awful last year in Double A. He had an 11.43 ERA, a 2.57 WHIP, 3.50 average against, walked 38, struck out just 34 in 37 innings. But he was great in 2019. He was on Oakland's 40-man roster. Missed 2020 due to the pandemic. Missed 2021 due to an injury. So I think they're really slow playing him to tweak some things, fix him, smooth him out. On the year, he's pitched seven and two-thirds innings, three hits, no runs, three walks to 12 strikeouts. It's like, I'm not saying he's the next Felix Batista or Yinyar Cano, but I'm not not saying he's the next Felix Batista or Yinyar Cano. Just I'm very excited to follow his journey this year in Bowie and hopefully ultimately Norfolk. Yeah, love it. Choices from both of you. I'm going to start with my pitcher. I'm going to go all the way down to Delmarva and shout out Edgar Portez. Portez against Charleston over the weekend. Three and two-thirds innings, uh, scoreless. Struck out six and walked two. 
Portes was a guy who I think we – or is a guy that we can look at now and say with a degree of certainty fits the mold of someone who would have benefited from a year in short season A ball back if that level were still around. Because in 2021, he had a 6.84 ERA down in the Florida Complex League. But he struck out 25 batters in as many innings while walking 19. Last year, walked a lot of guys, had a 6.32 ERA at Delmarva and struck out 49 batters in 57 innings. This year, the walks have held steady, but the strikeouts are way up. He has fanned 27 batters in 21 two-thirds innings pits while posting a 4.98 ERA. And keep in mind, Portes, just 20 years old, he won't turn 21 until October. So still a young arm, seems to be making some strides this year. And then at Aberdeen, I'm going to uh, go with my hitter and Jacob Teeter. Teeter strung together two really good games in a row against Winston-Salem last week, going combined five for nine with two RBIs between May 20th and May 21st. He had a couple of one-hit games earlier in the series. And Teeter started this year out at A Bowie, but I think that that was a situation where not having a lot of depth at that position for that level, and T.T. Bowens being on the I.L. to start things off, forced Teeter to Bowie before he was really ready. Because last year at Aberdeen, injuries limited Teeter to just 37 games and 149 plate appearances. So he's probably back at the right level for him now. And he's got an opportunity to, you know, hopefully stay healthy and show that he can hit high A pitching and keep himself in the conversation as far as first base prospects go in the system. And before we get to our last segment, though, about the City Connect jerseys, um, <laughs> you mentioned T.T. Bowens, and we can't get through this segment without mentioning T.T. Bowens. Shout out to T.T. Bowens, who his first five double-A games this past week, he hit 444 with a home run, three RBIs, two walks, struck out just one time in his first five double-A games. So shout out to Teeter. I do still like Teeter as a first-base prospect, but shout out to T.T. Bowens as well. Yeah, good point. I mean, I thought Bowens could have been up with Billy halfway through last year, so it's about time he got up there and he's not wasting any time. And yeah, Teeter, the thing going for him is the Orioles don't really have first base prospects, so he's going to get plenty of time to to adjust. And yeah, he just was – that's a huge jump to go from barely playing, probably playing through an injury most of the time last year before even – you know, miss the rest of the season and to go straight to double A, that's, that's really tough. So hopefully he can get some success under his belt and maybe he earns his way back up there before the year's over. So before we do wrap up here, uh, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down on the Connect City jerseys. Mm, three quarters up. <laughs> I don't know how to, <laughs> I, I, I like the black I know Cincinnati had all black right before us, but I, I do like the all black with those pops of color. It looks good, especially when you got the sleeves rolled up a little unbuttoned. The Felix Bautista picture looks pretty, pretty good. Um, I like that it's orange lettering on the back. Wish it was orange on the front, but I might get one. They're pretty cool. They're different. Why not? I'll say they look better on the players than they do like just by themselves yeah, or like on the mannequins when the photos of the players i'm like all right that's fine but i'm I'm just not a jersey guy it's fun to play around with it on twitter or whatever because everybody was so heated uh today on both sides of the aisle but i'm i don't care like 
wear whatever jersey, whatever day of the week, whatever style you want. I, I just don't care about jerseys. I just want to watch baseball. Um, but I, I, yeah, my opinion is they're fine, and I think they, I think they'll look good when they're on the field. But the whole backstory thing—that's the only part I don't get. It's like, here's what they are, but we got to do all this ex- explaining of what it means. That like, mm, okay. That's Typical fine. non-Marylander. No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's the other thing. Don't ask the non-Marylander here my opinion of the uh, City Connect jersey. Yeah, I'm trying to think who should I get my jersey in. Yusniel Diaz already got him. So, Jemai Jones? Good one. Yusniel Diaz. Yeah. Just have a trio of Yusniel Diaz jerseys. Yeah, every variation. <laughs> uh, I'm going to reserve absolute judgment until I see them on the field, but... I, I'm going thumbs up. I would have liked for a little bit more arms, but I think overall they work. I love the tie-in to Globe posters with the font. I thought that was really cool. I like the script B on the hat. But yeah, that's cool. De- that's cool. You know, depending on which uh, social media conversation I landed in, I couldn't tell if this was the baseball equivalent of the male-female uh, sculpture outside <laughs> of Penn Station where I like it, but apparently a lot of people don't, and I don't know why. Uh, so hopefully more people come around to my side uh, before too long. Uh, it's all going to come down to somehow this is all Brandon Hyde's fault, whatever it is. That's all I know. <laughs> yes, Brandon Hyde punts lineups. John Angelos doesn't spend. Michael Elias doesn't spend in the draft. And same on Michael Elias for pulling off the Sammy Sosa trade and signing Albert Bell all those years ago. Because that's what really led to the Orioles' downfall, of course. Exactly. We're talking about the second-best team at baseball. This is this is amazing. This is a lot of fun. And yeah. and the I fact mean, that we can still sit here and have like all these conversations about all these deep prospects, and then at the same time while watching the second-best team at baseball, possibly a team that could win the AL East this year. I was going to say, like, I don't care what uniforms. I mean, same guys are wearing them. So as long as they keep winning, whatever. Absolutely. Uh, we will be back next week at our regular. Actually, we'll figure out next week because next Monday is a holiday. So stay tuned on Twitter at BSL on the Verge, and we'll have our schedule uh, posted once we finalize that. You're going to want to check out at BSL on the Verge on Twitter throughout the week for highlights from the minor leagues. And while you're on the internet, be sure to head over to BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com to check out the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. And while you're there, be sure to hop on the message board and join and discuss them with fellow readers of the site as well as contributors to BSL. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On The Verge. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.